Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Let us now give our attention to the reading and to the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. Then said Jesus unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do give thee thanks this morning for thy word. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear it. We ask that you would give us hearts to receive it. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we are dull of hearing. We confess that oftentimes we we wrestle against many things. And so we pray that we would clearly hear thy word, that we would respond in obedience, and that we would learn to love thy law. O Lord, open my mouth that I might proclaim glorious things from thy word and open our ears that we might receive it. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you were here last Lord's Day evening and you saw me throw the stool off to the side, it was not intentional. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Nick. This is much better. Well, as we draw our attention to our passage this morning, you have the outline for those that are using it. Uh, I am not an engineer, but I got a little more creative with the outline, so I hope that it's helpful. At least I trust it will be. As we uh, look at this topic this morning of charity toward an offending brother, I think one of the things that we see over and over again in the Gospel of Luke is the calling of men and women to follow Jesus. If we are to understand the Gospels properly, particularly the Gospel of Luke, we must see who Jesus says that he is. We must believe in him, and we must follow him. That's really the essence of all of the Gospel accounts, particularly those three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, there is the parable told in Matthew chapter 5, of the wise and foolish builder. Jesus shows that those who hear his word are either like wise men or like foolish men. Wise men will hear and follow, and fools do not hear but reject his word. He says in that parable, and Jesus teaches us, that wise men must hear and hear correctly, And then respond with grace and follow him. That metaphor that is used there for wise building in that uh, parable or metaphor used in Matthew's gospel 
is a blueprint for building a gospel-centered, Christ-centered home. And that's really what the heart of the gospels are. They're covenant documents. They're documents written to the people of God. They're documents written to the church. How are we, as I said last week, then to live? In light of the fact that we have this covenant document, in light of the fact that this is a blueprint for how we are to build our house, the question is, are we going to build it like wise builders? Or are we going to build it like foolish builders? And I think this passage really speaks to that very clearly. That we can either be foolish or we can be wise in how we build. And so as we approach particularly this whole context of Luke 17 verses 1 through 10, there are four characteristics that Jesus describes of a wise builder. A home that understands the peril of sin. A home that understands the practice of forgiveness. A home that understands the question of faith. And fourthly, a home that understands the need for humility. If we would understand those four characteristics, then we would be wise. We would have God-fearing homes and God-fearing churches because really, if our families are weak, our homes are disfragmented and fallen, how will the church be? So this is a, this is a way for us to, to think practically, to build as wise men and women. So as we consider this morning the first two characteristics, and it's there in your outline, we consider, first of all, the peril of sin. What is the connection here? Chapter 17 in the minds of some seems to be disconnected sayings of Jesus. Or perhaps they're just miscellaneous things that Luke just puts within the text. Or perhaps there's a connection to the whole theme of Luke, which I believe is the, is the case. It's a connection to the entire theme of the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is the suffering servant, that He is the Messiah, that He is the prophet who was foretold in the Old Testament would come and bring salvation to sinners. And so we must understand as we see this that there is a connection here. It's not just some isolated thing that Jesus is talking about. You'll see this as we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, that there, there comes a, a time in the ministry of Christ when the focus is upon His miracles, His signs, and His wonders that testify to His authority. And then other times we see Him teaching. And then other times we see Him using parables. And then other times there's this call to discipleship. And so we must see here, that there is a connection to what has previously been stated. And so as we deal with this first characteristic this morning of the peril of sin, Jesus now addresses his disciples. We've seen him kind of go back and forth. He addressed them earlier. He addressed those crowds of people who wanted to follow him. And now he addresses, and then he addresses the Pharisees and scribes, and now he comes back And addresses his disciples. So note that. As we look at these four verses. Jesus says unto the disciples. 
as they are making their final journey to Jerusalem, as they're coming to the end of the earthly ministry of Christ, they're making that transition to Jerusalem. He instructs them about the danger and peril of causing others to sin. He tells them that offenses will come. You cannot avoid them. Offenses will come even by the providence of God he allows for those offenses. And so those offenses will come. It's impossible to prevent them. Everywhere you go, you will find offenses or scandals. So what are these offenses that Jesus addresses here to his disciples? Notice there in verse 1 at the last half of it. But woe unto him through whom they come. We've seen those woes. We've seen the, the use of woes in the Old Testament prophets, particularly the, the major prophets, where they speak woes or judgments to the, to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Judah. We see in the Gospel of Matthew a whole series of woes spoken to the Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you blind guides. Woe to you who are worried about cleaning the inside or the outside of the cup, not worried about the inside. And so he issues a woe and a warning to those through whom these offenses come. Jesus takes this as a serious matter. Woe unto him through whom those offenses come. He is warning the disciples of the time when they will face scandal, and they will face offenses. John Owen, in one of his sermons to the church from the parallel passage in Matthew, says that verse 1 refers to a time of one of three things. He says that the offenses that come that he warns the disciples about refers to the time of persecution when many would fall away. You see this in the time of Nero. You see this in the time of the first century, that many who professed to be followers of Christ fell away in times of persecution. And that was one of the sins that led to, to them being put out of the church. If they didn't remain faithful, if they cowered under fear in times of persecution, it's an indication that they really had no part of Christ of his kingdom. Jesus reminds us that he who is not willing to give up houses and land and father and mother and all things in this life for the sake of the kingdom of God is what? Not worthy to follow me. And so John Owen says it refers to the time of, of great persecution. He says, secondly, verse 1 refers to a time when great sins abound, even within the, the visible church, that would give and take offenses. And so when great sins abound in the church, he says you see more and more giving and taking of offenses. And I think this is a serious thing to consider. That when... Great sins abound and rise within the church, and we're seeing that now in our day. A number of, of things I've read this week just, just astound me. 
that great sins abounding within the church. And yet it leads to more giving and more taking of offenses. And so the church becomes an offense to the world, not because of its suffering for Christ, because it doesn't have its house in order. And then thirdly, John Owen says this can refer to a time of decay in the church when it grows cold and indifferent offenses will abound. And isn't that a warning that John gives there in the Revelation to some of those churches? Don't lose your first love. Don't fall into the trap of the Nicolaitans. Don't fall into these things. And so the church can see a Offenses abounding in times of great decay, in times of great apathy. And I think if anything in our day describes the visible church, it is apathy. It's indifference, it's coldness to the things of God. There are two kinds of offenses that Jesus has in mind here. Those that are taken and not given. And secondly, those offenses that are given and also taken. And you see that there in your outline. The first offense of those taken and not given refers to the Lord Jesus. He is an offense. He is a scandal to the world. In 1 Peter it says he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The scripture says he was led as a lamb before his shearers and opened not his mouth. He was an offense to the world. He was an offense to his enemies. But you know what? Jesus Christ was never an offense to man. Even in his warnings, even in his threats, even in his judgments, he never sinned. He was never disobedient. He never responded in anger or in kind as we often do. And so we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ had taken an offense, but had given no offense. He was led as a lamb before her shears, before his shears, and he opened not his mouth. This is said of the apostles as well. This is also said of his ambassadors and preachers in every age of the church. They will be an offense to the world. And friends, we must be an offense to the world. We will be an offense to the world. It comes automatically. But as we are an offense to the world because of our stand for Christ, because of our cause for Christ, we should never give offense. The gospel is the only offense that the world will receive. And so we see the example here of those who will take offense but not be given offense. This is also said of these disciples here. And this is what verses 1 and 2 are speaking of particularly. That offenses will come. That you will be an offense in your ministry. You will be an offense as they go through, through their journeys there in the book of Acts. As they, as they go laying the foundation for the church. As they establish churches. They will be an offense. 
but they never give offense. They always stand as ambassadors, as those in Christ. But there's a second offense, and that is those that are given and those that are taken. Offenses given and taken can refer to public sins. It can refer to scandalous sins. And so I've seen even this past week, scandalous sins within the church, within Reformed churches. Scandalous sins that the world sees. Scandalous sins that some tabloid picks up on. Some scandalous sin that claims it is a Christian tabloid. So we got to expose this. Sin is always to be exposed within the courts of the church. And yet scandalous sins will come and the world will see it. Immorality and false professors within the church will come, will give offense and they will take offense. David was an offense given and taken. See that in his adultery with Bathsheba. In his plot to murder her husband to cover up his sin. Oh, there's so many, so many webs of deception there. So many sins that are weaved there. And yet, David was an offense. His life was an offense. Any deed or act given that makes someone sin is an offense. And you know what? We as Christians have to be careful that we do not become an offense to others. I know we live in a day when everybody's offended. You just look at somebody, they're offended. You make a comment, somebody's offended. I'm not talking about that kind of offense. Those aren't offenses. Those are just nitpicky things. But those offenses are serious offenses that come that might be Uh, Any deed or action done that causes someone to sin. Or perhaps we might, like a mischievous boy, find ourselves playing pranks on someone that leads to some serious injury. That's how sin can be. It can be an act that will cause serious injury. It will be an act that will cause great harm to the one to whom... It is given. And so Jesus says, Woe unto him through whom they come. Woe unto him who, like the Pharisees and scribes, give offense to the cause of Christ and to his gospel. Woe unto him who has false shepherds within the church of God lead people astray through false teaching, through false doctrine, through false life and immorality. Those things are to be a stumbling. And so he speaks of the offense that will cause someone to fall and stumble. Persecutors who will lead the disciples in sin or apostasy. Here is the threat from outside. The attacks of the enemy. And I believe chapter 17, particularly verses 1 and 2, refer back to that section there in chapter 16 of Luke. Jesus has warned the Pharisees that they are being covetous. He warns the Pharisees that they are not gracious. He warns the Pharisees that they are selfish and care not about the flock. They care not about even one like Lazarus who sat at his gate, the rich man's gate, every day and he didn't care for him. He didn't look after his needs. 
And so he says that they refuse to hear the prophets. They refuse to hear Moses. They won't hear Jesus because their hearts are hardened. So he says this offense refers back to chapter 16. Those Pharisees despised Jesus. They had spiritual care for Israel. And yet they didn't consider it. They despised those in need. Jesus ushers a strong warning. Notice verse 2. This is a proverbial expression that is used in Matthew. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he be cast into the sea. Then he should offend one of these little ones. It's a hyperbole. Nobody's going to put a millstone around your neck and cast you into the sea. But the point that Jesus is making is if someone leads these little ones astray, it would be better if one of those instruments, a heavy piece of stone that is used by oxen as they drive their plow, it would be better if that thing would be hung around their neck, that heavy piece of equipment. And they would be cast into the sea. This is an expression of judgment. This is a cruel death that should come to one who leads these little ones astray. So who are the little ones? It's not difficult on the surface to see who the little ones are. Little ones are, is an expression that is used in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 42, and Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 14. I draw your attention to Matthew chapter 18. Because I think this is so important to illustrate. And here Luke is using the same words, same phrases that are used in Matthew and Mark in a different way. But there in chapter 18 of Matthew... Jesus here is talking in the context of who is great within the kingdom of God. He says those who are great are like little children. They are the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 5 of Matthew 18, And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Verse 6, But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, which what? Believe in me. It would be better if a millstone were hanged about his neck that he be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of these offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. But woe unto that man for whom that offense cometh. Matthew uses the same expression as Luke. But he applies it in a different way. As you look on in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, Take heed, same expression as Luke uses, that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. And then finally, he says there in verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, 
that one of these little ones should perish. And so he uses the expression little ones to refer to those who are followers of Christ. Those are who are his disciples. He often calls his disciples little ones or little sheep or his little flock. And so as young disciples, he refers to them as his little flock because they're beginning in their faith. They are weak and vulnerable. And so this is a warning that is an encouragement to them. You know what? We are accustomed to thinking that anytime the Bible uses a warning, it's a a message of judgment and condemnation. But warnings are always sent to the church to be an encouragement, to be a blessing to those who are his disciples. And so the encouragement comes that they are objects of his care and protection. When they face tribulations, they, he will be with them. Their enemies will suffer his holy wrath as those who follow after them. And so Jesus says, I have your protection and your care. And so it is a great injustice. It's a great serious matter for the Lord Jesus Christ to say, woe to the one who would lead one of these little ones astray, just as the Pharisees often did. The picture of the crowd there in chapter 15 coming to hear Jesus, the publicans, the tax collectors, the sinners come out, they're converted under his preaching, and now the, the Pharisees and scribes become indignant. He's eating and drinking with sinners. And yet here they are encouraged. And in the midst of affliction, he will protect them. And the Lord Jesus Christ will protect us. Whatever afflictions we face, he will protect us. But secondly, we see not only this characteristic of the peril of sin and the offenses that come, but we see the practice of forgiveness. Verses 3 through 4. That is really the heart of what Jesus says here. In verses 1 and 2, he speaks of the threat of offenses that will come from outside. The offenses that came to the Lord Jesus, the offenses that come to the apostles and his followers. And now Jesus addresses the threats of offenses that come from within. How should these disciples handle offenses that occur among themselves? Better yet, how do we handle offenses that occur among ourselves? Oh, we never have that problem here, right? Oh, offenses come, Jesus says, but how do we handle those things? This is the greater threat, I think, for the church because it involves relationships among believers. Jesus instructs them, take heed, verse 3, to yourselves. And so there's a change in thought here. Take heed to yourselves that you do not become an offense, that you do not become a stumbling block in a sinful way. You see that analogy there in, in Romans chapter 15 of eating meat before idols? The picture is of 
of the weaker brother who perhaps comes out of paganism, who is accustomed to eating meat offered to idols or food offered to idols. So they go into the temple and they eat the food and it causes the weak man to stumble. It's not wrong for him to eat meat or to drink, but it is wrong to be a stumbling block to the weaker brother. So what is our duty, Christian, when we are wronged or a trespass is committed against us? Well, you have in the outline, I tried to spell it out as clearly as I could, our duty when we are wronged or when an offense is given is to confront, to rebuke him is what Jesus says here. If thy brother, notice he says by brother, not a stranger, not an alien, not someone outside of the, of the house of God, but if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. That is the confrontation that he speaks about. We do not believe this, do we? No, of course not. We don't believe this. Because we don't do it. There is a need to deal with an offense. Well, you know what? I, I don't like confrontation. Guess what? Your pastor doesn't like confrontation. And yet, when sin is committed, when something grievously is committed... There is a need to deal with that offense immediately. The need to deal with that offense comes immediately, not by way of a text, not by way of an email, not by any other means than a direct face-to-face rebuke. Now, let me say what I mean by rebuke. Because I think we take rebuke to mean that we're just ready to fight. But the rebuke that Jesus has in mind here is the same rebuke that Paul uses when he says, when you preach the word, rebuke, exhort, and correct. And so it's the language of dealing with children. Okay, Sarah, I told you, that's the third time you've messed up. You deal gently, you deal firmly, but you deal gently with a face-to-face rebuke. This rebuke must always be gentle. It must always be a loving rebuke as a brother to a brother or a friend to a friend. I think we're fearful to confront or rebuke because we don't know what to say. We feel like we might get tongue twisted. We feel like we might be get angry. But we are not to have an arrogant or proud attitude when we rebuke. But we are simply to bring the offense. In fact, it doesn't take a long conversation. You don't have to walk around the barn. You just simply bring the offense. This is difficult because it requires of us something that most of us don't like to do. Jesus said, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that thy brother has ought or sin against thee, leave thy gift at the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. 
And so in that confrontation or rebuke, it is always for reconciliation and restoration. It's always to what? Create peace. Not to create more conflict. If by going and confronting them and rebuking them, they take offense, then the problem lies with them. But if you go and you confront them and you get all upset and angry and and all of that sort of thing and you become arrogant, then the fault lies with you. But Jesus gives the picture here of, of coming and offering thy gift, but leaving it first and going to be reconciled to thy brother. wonder how many times in seasons of communion we would see the blessing and benefit of the Lord's Supper when we seek to go beforehand and say, you know, I've, I've been wrong. I ask your forgiveness. I seek your forgiveness. So our duty is to confront, to rebuke. But second of all, our duty is always to offer, to seek, or to extend forgiveness to the offender. And this comes in four ways. Forgiveness should always be offered immediately. If you wait, if you delay, guess what happens? It begins to fester. You begin to get ulcers. Ulcers are nothing more than just anger and worry all trapped inside. And so you get all bothered up, and then you can't even remember what was the cause of the offense. I can't remember. I can't remember the details. And so that's why you have to go when your mind is fresh, when the, when the offense has been committed. But secondly, you go in sincerity and cordially. God truly forgives his people. God does not forgive us half-heartedly. He forgives us fully and completely. And so when we offer forgiveness, we should truly, fully forgive. Thirdly, there is the, the offering or that giving of forgiveness fully for all debts. There might be several debts that come out of this offense. Oftentimes it's more than one thing. But we need to forgive all debts. Isn't that the message of Psalm 103? When the psalmist says in verse 3, Who forgiveth, what? All thine iniquities. Who healeth what? All thy diseases. There is no debt that Christ has not forgiven. I've heard people say, he wipes out all your past debt, but you still have all that future debt. That's no savior. That's no redeemer. He wipes out all my debt, past, present, and future. And I must be willing to cancel the debt of the one who comes with that offense. But fourthly and finally, and this is the, the heart of what Jesus says in verse 4, how often should I forgive? What? Seven times in a day? You know, I have to chuckle because if you were to 
offend someone seven times in a day, you know what would typically happen? You just get frustrated. You think, you've done this again. And it may be the same offense. What? We're to go seven times a day? The point of Jesus' teaching is that whenever anyone sins or offends us and they come and seek forgiveness, we are obligated to forgive them. And let me say that when you are called to forgive, you are called to forget. What kind of God would forgive our sins and yet remember them? The psalmist says he forgives our sins and remembers them no more. And we are called to forgive our brother and sister's sin and remember it no more, as if it never happened. And so somebody comes back to you 10 weeks later and says, oh, yeah, what about that? And you say, what? What are you talking about? That never happened. That debt has been canceled. That debt has been forgiven. Thomas Watson, in a wonderful exposition on the Lord's Prayer, and I commend Thomas Watson's book on the Lord's Prayer. It's wonderful. He says, let us be persuaded that if we hope to be forgiven and receive salvation from the Lord, we must pass by petty injuries and discourtesies and labor for a forgiving spirit. Now, some of us are more prone to being stubborn. Some of us are more prone to just Uh, it's okay, it's done. You never, never cast off someone coming to you and saying, please forgive me. Oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Forgive and confess that forgiveness and confess that that, uh, that offense. Draw your attention to Colossians. We don't have time to go back into what the Apostle Paul has already reminded us in Ephesians regarding forgiving. We've seen that already in, in Second Peter or in First Peter. But Colossians three thirteen. Paul says, verse twelve, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one in, with one another, and forgiving one another. And if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And here it's very clear that because we are in Christ and we are identified with him, we are to forgive our brothers and our sisters just as Christ has forgiven us. Thomas Watson says, there are three ways in which we show this forgiveness. We show this forgiveness by indicating that we resemble God, who is always able and willing to forgive. Secondly, we resemble that forgiveness to others is the highest evidence of saving grace. And thirdly, we show that we are imitators of Christ who had a forgiving spirit when his enemies reviled him. few examples from both Scripture and from life 
of forgiving spirits. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 50, 21? Brothers sold him into Egypt. They, they didn't like their brother. They thought he was the father's favorite. So they had him sold by caravan of slaves. And um, they, they, they were mean and cruel to him. But what was the posture of Joseph toward his brothers who had offended him? He cared for them. He showed mercy and compassion. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, prayed for his persecutors, don't lay to this to their charge. Moses received many injuries and suffered much. The people of God murmured against Moses. They murmured against his ministry. And yet Moses had a spirit of forgiveness. Other saints... This is a wonderful example from the life of Calvin. When Luther reviled Calvin, which is not unusual, Calvin said, Though he call me a devil a thousand times, yet I will love him and honor him as a precious servant of Christ. I am sure that spirit of Calvin led to more reconciliation with Luther than any, any other thing he could have done. Luther was a fiery man. He was a man who was prone to quick temper. He used embellished language. And yet we see that Calvin showed mercy and forgiveness and called him one whom he honors and loves as a precious saint. Friends, sin is a debt because we owe a penalty for them, which we cannot fully satisfy unless we are released from it. Christ paid the debt he did not owe because we could not pay the debt that we owe. Christ commands us to pray for the pardon of our sins in the Lord's Prayer. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sins. There in that model prayer, that is not just a model, but a, a guide for us to pray. In that fifth petition, Jesus says, for, Pray, forgive us our, debtor, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew six twelve, As we forgive and pardon all who injure us, those who offend us, those who sin against us. We are reminded that only God can forgive sin. We cannot forgive sin, but we can, can um, take away the debt. We can remove the, the hatred, the revenge, the bitterness, the anger, the strife. That thing that stands in the way of reconciliation between those whom we have offended. If we retain these things, if we seek to remember them, if we seek to hold on to them, if we develop the attitude toward our brothers and sisters, day in and day out, we are in essence asking God not to forgive our debt. That's really the heart of it. That's strange. That is difficult teaching, and I've struggled with that as well. But... The passage says, forgive us our debts or trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. The condition is, if God has forgiven us, what's the next thing? We will automatically forgive. We cannot forgive unless we have experienced God's grace. We cannot forgive if we have not been given a new heart and a new desire and a new motivation to do what God commands us to do. And I think that's so important. I close by way of application. Then in the outline, I give you the whole back to write out the application. But there in the Heidelberg Catechism, I love the Heidelberg Catechism because sometimes it's very brief and just nails it down. But there in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 112, it says this, and this relates to the passage this morning. What is required in the ninth commandment? The answer is that I bear false witness against no man. That I not falsify any man's words. Oh, he said this. Oh, did he? That I be no backbiter or slanderer. Oh, you know what? I'm not a gossip, but did you hear this? That I do not judge. That I do not join in condemning, condemning any man rashly or unheard. But that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God, likewise that in judgment and all other doings, I love the truth, I speak it uprightly, and I confess it, that I defend and promote as much as I am able, the honor and the good character of my neighbor. So friends, we are called to guard the truth. We are called to love the truth. We are called to defend the truth. And that means in how we treat and show charity one to another. Let us forgive as God has forgiven us. Not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us determine today to settle our accounts quickly. We settle our bills quickly. We don't wait to pay the light bill or the electric bill or the property tax. We pay it when it's due. Then why do we delay in settling our accounts one with another? Leave no debt outstanding other than to love one another. So what are you going to do in response to what Jesus says? You're going to complain? You're going to murmur? You're going to develop an attitude to our brother or sister? Are you going to go and you say, you know what, I'm, I really need to, need to talk about something. And clear that and, and seek forgiveness so that restoration and healing will come. Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you and me. He not only forgave us, but he reconciled himself unto us. And friends, we are called to reconcile unto one another. And so this morning, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you 
are not a disciple of his, then you must seek mercy and forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ. For if he does not forgive you, if he does not pardon you, you are under his judgment. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you need to make sure of your calling and your election. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do come to this morning and confess before thee that these things that we have heard this morning are difficult. And yet you have given us a new mind and a new heart and a new motive and a new desire. And so we would plead with you for your mercy and forgiveness that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give us grace and strength that we might guard the truth, that we might love the truth, that we might always be willing to forgive and to confess and to reconcile with our brother or sister. Bless this word to the benefit of our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.